Lord, I pray a blessing on the teaching of Your Word tonight. Before we begin to to eat and to digest, Father, we thank You for the feast set out before us and ask Your blessing now. Teach us, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we left Jeremiah in the Hinnom Valley. He's been there all week. Giving the prophecy of the broken bakbuk. Remember that? The pot that makes that bakbuk sound. It's a great... I just love the word. We've been using it at home now. I don't say pass the jar or pass the pitcher. I say, honey, pass the bakbuk. And he took that earthenware jar. He gave the prophecy of the of the smashing, literally the shattering of Judah. And he smashed the jar there in the Hinnom Valley. An amazing and very visual picture. This is what's coming. This is what's going to happen. But it strikes me, no pun intended, that people don't like to hear how breakable they are. We don't like to be presented with our weakness. Now maybe that's easier for some than for others. But I don't want to know. I don't want to be reminded how frail my life is. That's why car accidents are so upsetting. And funerals. And those moments in time where time stops and we recognize that, boy, these bodies just were not made to last. Not like our spirits were. So people don't like to hear about this, yet God did something miraculous, something supernatural, stupendous, outstanding, amazing, nearly unbelievable, 2,000 years ago at a feast known by the Jews as Shavuot, known often by Christians as Pentecost. And now, though we are still these earthenware jars, and we are still frail and fragile, 2 Corinthians 4.7 says we have this treasure in earthenware jars, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. And see, that's the deal. That when we recognize our breakableness, our breakability, and are filled With the Spirit of Christ, the treasure is the Spirit of Christ. Though we are still breakable back books, if the Spirit of Christ is residing in every one of us, in each one of us, we reflect Him so that, Paul writes, and get this, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. It is perfect the way God set it up. That we might be filled with His Spirit. And then involved in something so much bigger than we are. Literally involved in something eternal, something fantastic, something that is a great treasure. Jesus said in John 14, 16, I'll ask the Father, He'll give you another Helper, that He may be with you forever. The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see Him or know Him. But you know Him because He abides with you and will be in you. And that's great news for followers of Jesus. Oh yeah, my body may be breakable, but my spirit is everlasting and I've got a treasure here. I've got a phenomenal treasure that resides within me, the Spirit of Christ. Father and Son, Holy Spirit, making His home, abiding in me. But the message of breakability, or weakness, or worse, lostness, is something people just don't like to own. Remember that when you're talking to a non-believer you're actually going to talk to them about or lead them into a discussion about something they really don't want to hear. They really don't want to fess up to. It's a little hurdle. Once we get over that hurdle, 
Knowing about Jesus and hearing about salvation is marvelous. But oftentimes it takes us getting to a point of brokenness before we recognize that we have that need. And the reason is, as we talked about on Sunday, the heart is more deceitful than all else and desperately sick. So that's what's in the typical man, the typical woman, is a sick and dying heart. God comes along and says, I'll I'll transplant here. I'll give you a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone. I'll, I'll put my own treasure inside you, but we're still dealing with this deceitful, desperately sick heart. No wonder the reaction to Jeremiah's teaching of the breakable back book was so negative. Chapter 20, verse 1. When Pashkur the priest, the son of Emer, who was chief officer in the house of the Lord, heard Jeremiah prophesying these things, Pashkur had Jeremiah the prophet beaten and put him in the stocks that were at the upper Benjamin gate, which was by the house of the Lord. This was apparently SOP. You military people know what I'm talking about. Standard operating procedure. This is what they were doing at the time, but it was not from the Lord. The practice of putting someone in the stocks, a madman, a false prophet, was brought, actually brought on, and we'll see this when we get to Jeremiah 29, a false prophet named Shemaiah brings this on. He, he teaches, he tells the priests, this is what you need to do to these madmen, these false prophets like Jeremiah. And so this Pashkur does it. He puts Jeremiah in the stocks. And the stocks came via the mouth of the false prophets. And the stocks were not just for restraint. It's not like the movies perhaps you've seen in old England where a guy's just sitting there in the stocks, just kind of hanging out. It wasn't about restraint. It was about torture. In fact, the Hebrew word for stocks here, mach piket, means twisting or causing distortion. And so what they would do is they would put a person in these stocks, doubling over the body, folding hands and feet and neck in place, bent over, and leave them there. And it was very painful. And this is the place that Jeremiah the prophet spent the night. Why? What did he do that was so bad? He spoke the word. He shared the truth. He revealed the breakability of Judah. And in sharing that breakability, the people did not want to hear it. So, 24 hours later, verse 3, on the next day, when Pashkur released Jeremiah from the stocks, Jeremiah said to him, Pashkur is not the name the Lord has called you, but rather Magor Misabib, which means terror on every side. Got a new name for you, Pashkur. Terror on every side. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I am going to make you a terror to yourself and to all your friends. And while your eyes look on, they will fall by the sword of their enemies. So I will give over all Judah to the hand of the king of Babylon, and he will carry them away as exiles to Babylon and will slay them with the sword. I will also give over all the wealth of the city, all its produce, all its costly things, even all the treasures of the kings of Judah, I will give over to the hand of their enemies, and they will plunder them, take them away, and bring them to Babylon. Isn't that ironic? It was just some 500 years prior that Israel, the Israelites, the children of Israel, came out of Egypt and plundered Egypt. All the gold for the the implements in the temple, temple, where do you think they got all that? They got it from Egypt. And the Lord put it on the heart of the Egyptians just to give away their stuff as the Hebrews were leaving the land. And so they plundered them, but now it's turned around exactly the opposite. Now Israel, now Judah will be plundered 
by their enemy. And you, Pashkur, verse 6, and all who live in your house will go into captivity, you will enter Babylon, and there you will die, and there you will be buried, you and all your friends to whom you have falsely prophesied. Magor misabib. Terror on every side. And yet Pashkur's name, the Hebrew name Pashkur, literally means freedom. And I find that very ironic because people think that they literally can lock up or bend or twist the truth to silence it. We'll put the truth in the stocks and that'll shut it up. That'll keep it from being heard. We'll just take it down from our monuments. We'll remove it from the public square. We will try to silence truth. And so in trying to bend or twist it, they lose their freedom and enter into terror. Jesus said in John 8.31, If you continue in my word, you're truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will what? Set you free. The truth is freedom. Now it may be hard to hear, but it is freedom. Jesus said in John 8.36, If the Son makes you free, then you will be free indeed. But Pashkur goes from freedom to terror on every side because he does not want to hear the truth. And that's what happens spiritually today. When people reject the truth, when we don't want to hear the truth, we lose our freedom. We lose the joy. We lose the delight. And we end up with terror on every side. Now, Jeremiah fresh out of the stocks and the iron collar, good old Jeremiah starts to pour out his very human heart to the Lord. We're going to enter into now another one of Jeremiah's prayers. And and I'll give you three aspects of it. And the first one is what I would call the complaint of the persuaded. The complaint of the persuaded, verse 7. O Lord, You have deceived me, and I was deceived. You have overcome me, and prevailed, I have become a laughing stock all day long. Everyone mocks me. Now, hold it right there. That should bother you. It bothered me. Because didn't we just go through this with Jeremiah back in Jeremiah 15, verse 18? Where Jim, Jeremiah said to the Lord, Will you indeed be to me like a deceptive stream with water that is unreliable? Will you be a deceptive stream? The Hebrew word there in Jeremiah 15:18, Azkab, it means deceptive. Jeremiah comes right up to the verge of blasphemy almost in his brokenness, in his upsetness at the Lord. He says, will you be like a deceptive stream to me? And God, remember what God says in response? Jeremiah, you need to repent. You need to turn around back to me, son. And I told you at the time, that's the last time that the complaint of Jeremiah goes that far. Well, are we there again? Oh Lord, you have deceived me and I was deceived. Has the Lord deceived him? Obviously not. Is Jeremiah right in saying what he's saying? I think he is because it's a different word. It's not the word azkab, deceptive. It is the word pata, which means a powerful persuasion. And you might make a note of that because it's a little... This is the tricky thing about the Hebrew language and also about the Greek language when we get to the New Testament is the word sometimes can have variations and various meanings and the difference in the meanings can be so slight and so subtle and yet make all the difference in the world. And what Jeremiah is saying here, the the primary use of this Hebrew word patah is persuasion, (coughs) allure. You have allured me. You've drawn me in. You have forcefully persuaded me. It's not deception. 
It's that I was allured by you. I was drawn into this message, into this ministry, into this prophecy. If you go back to Jeremiah chapter 1, you can see the Lord very clearly laid out exactly what was going to happen should Jeremiah choose to be his prophet. In Jeremiah's calling, he made it clear this is not going to be an easy walk. This is going to be very, very difficult. And you can go back and check that out. But Jeremiah now is just, he's, he's, he's hit the hard times. I have never been put in the stocks for my faith. I have never been twisted or bent over backwards or forward either way for my faith. I've never had that kind of punishment, physical hardship. I think most of us have had just little things here and there. Someone gets upset at us. Someone thinks we're off our rocker, you know, and we walk away and we're a little, oh, I'm going to a little hurt in my heart. He was mean to me, you know. I've never been bound. Jeremiah comes out of this and all he was doing was preaching the word of the Lord. All he was doing was following Jesus. Read on in verse 8. It says, Each time I speak, I cry aloud, I proclaim violence and destruction. You think that was fun for Jeremiah? Because for me, the word of the Lord has resulted in reproach and derision, not occasionally, not every other week, all day long. This is my life, says Jeremiah. And he goes on and says, But if I say I will not remember him or speak any more in his name, then in my heart it becomes like a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary of holding it in, and I cannot endure it. Whatever I do, I'm, gonna, I'm in trouble here. I'm either going to get burned because I'm preaching the Word, or I hold the Word in and I get burned inside. And so he's pouring out his heart to the Lord. For I have heard the whispering of many, terror on every side. And he's almost sarcastic here. He's repeating the name, obviously, you just heard that was given by the Lord to Pashkur. But Jeremiah is saying, feels more like it's my name. He says, denounce him. Yes, let us denounce him. Jeremiah is saying, I'm hearing this. All my trusted friends watching for my fall. And they say, perhaps he will be deceived so that we may prevail against him and take our revenge on him. I read that and I thought, why doesn't he just stop speaking? It was so bad, Jeremiah. Just close your mouth and take a break. He can't. Because the word is too incendiary. The word is too combustible. If Jeremiah tries to keep it in, as he says in verse 9, it is spontaneous combustion in his heart. He can't do it. It's painful to speak it out. It is painful to keep it in. So either way, he's burning up. The Word of God, understand this. And I don't give this as a word, as a warning as much as an encouragement, but beware. If you get into the Word of God, if you study the Word of God, if you pour over the Scriptures, it will become like a burning fire inside you. It is incendiary. It ignites the inner man, literally to burn beyond our endurance. But that's a good thing. Because then we start to remember and realize the surpassing greatness of the power of God is not from ourselves. It's His greatness. It's His power. It's His ability that keeps us going. So when I get to that place, and you know, there, there was a lot of talk a few years ago, not so much lately, but among pastors about burnout. we got to avoid burnout. How do we avoid burnout? I'm like, Jeremiah was burned outside and inside. His life was burnout. 
How did he keep going? By the all-surpassing greatness of the power of God that was in him. I need to get burned sometimes. Inside and out. And recognize, Lord, I can't endure. I can't keep going. And that's when the Lord says, Good. Yoke yourself to me. And let me carry you. I'll give you the power. I'll give you the words. I'll take you where you need to go. The real reality is the Lord is not going to burn me out, but He will burn out of me. And so Jeremiah is called a laughingstock. And so he's mocked. And so he's reproached and derided for speaking this truth that he cannot help but speak. And that truly is my desire. As we study the Word together, my desire is that every single one of us get to the point where we cannot shut up about Jesus. Where we cannot hold the Word in. We have to tell it. And if we go to bed at night and we haven't been speaking the Word during the day, we lay there going, Oh, heartburn. <laughs> this is the great dichotomy of the Word of God. You remember back in chapter 15, Jeremiah says, On the one hand, your words were found and I ate them, and your words became for me a delight, a joy, a joy and the delight of my heart. But the Word is also, on the other hand, combustible, and it can burn with bitterness. Jeremiah 29, again, just listen to the prophet. If I say I will not remember him or speak any more in his name, then in my heart it becomes like a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary of holding it in, and I cannot endure it. And Jeremiah is not the only one. You know, we have three specific examples of the bitterness of the Word of God in somebody's heart in the Bible. And I use that word very purposefully. The sweetness of the book and the bitterness of the book in Revelation chapter 10. John is told to go take a little book from the angel's hand. And he's told to eat the little book. So John, uh, Revelation chapter 10, verse 10, he says, I took the little book out of the angel's hand and I ate it. And in my mouth it, became, it was as sweet as honey. What's he talking about? The Word of God. The Word is sweet as honey. Sweeter than the honey on the, on the honeycomb. Right? We know that's the Word. That's how the Bible describes itself. Sweeter than honey. So I took the book, I ate it sweet as honey, and then John says, and when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. The sweet word goes in, and the word creates a bitterness inside the body. A curiously similar thing happens to Ezekiel. I won't read the passage, but you can check it out. Ezekiel chapter 2, beginning at verse 8, and running through chapter 3 about verse 15 And what the Word tells us is that the Bible, God's Word, is sweet and sour. It's delightful and bitter. Why? Because the truth is very tasty, but the truth is also sometimes very hard to swallow. The truth is also bitter. Because once you've come to know the sweet-tasting Word of God, the Word also tells you, I've got a family member who's going to hell right now. The Word told me that. I've got close friends right now who are lost in the world. The Word told me that. I live in a world that is desperately sick. The Word told me that. That's bitter news. It's hard to keep in. Here's the thing to get. When the sweet Word begins to burn, get it out. Get it out. Belch it up. (laughs) Get the Word out. We all ought to carry with us our Bibles and a little bottle of Ipecac syrup. 
You know? So we're going to take the epic... And, and, and I'm being graphic, but we've got to get the word out. I, that's the whole idea. In fact, Ezekiel, after his little snack on the scroll of the Lord, that sweet-tasting snack, and then the bitterness, Ezekiel 3.15 says, I came to the exiles who lived beside the river Chabar at Tel Abib, and I sat there seven days where they were living, causing consternation among them. What do you mean, Ezekiel? I was a pain in the neck. I was just sitting there bugging them for seven days. And at the end of seven days, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, I have appointed you a watchman to the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, warn them from me. Get it out. Speak my word. John says in Revelation 10 verse 11, after he ate the little book, his stomach was made bitter. The immediate response of the angel was, You must prophesy again concerning many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. John is told, if the word is bitter in your stomach, get it out. Ezekiel is told, if the word is bitter and causing consternation, speak it out. Get it out. That's the key. When the word burns like fire in our bones, we get the word out. But there's good news, and Jeremiah experiences this. Something happens on the inside to our hearts when we get the word out, when we speak the burning word that we've heard. Secondly, in this prayer, we see the confidence of the persecuted. The confidence of the persecuted. Verse 11, Jeremiah goes on saying, But the Lord is with me like a dread champion. I like that. I think we need to have a praise song about the dread champion. That could be cool. You'd have to rock. Therefore, my persecutors will stumble and will not prevail. They will be utterly ashamed because they have failed with an everlasting disgrace that will not be forgotten. Yet, O Lord of hosts, you who test the righteous, who see the mind and the heart, let me see your vengeance on them. For to you I have set forth my cause. Sing to the Lord. Praise the Lord. For He has delivered the soul of the needy one from the hand of the evildoers. Amazing. Suddenly, confidence flows into the heart of Jeremiah. He has to get the word out. As he's getting the word out, here comes the confidence. And that truly is what happens. The more you speak the word, the more confident you're going to be in the word that you've spoken. It's a cool dynamic that the Lord brings. By the way, did you catch Jeremiah's reference to what he had heard and what he had spoken? See, Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9 The heart is more deceitful than all else. Is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jeremiah 17.10 I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways. Right? Look at what Jeremiah says. You who test the righteous, who see the mind and the heart. By hearing the word and speaking the word, now Jeremiah has a command of the word. And he's repeating now what he has been told, what he's already spoken before. Now it's, a, now it's the substance of his prayer. He recognizes the Lord who tests, who proves both the heart and the mind. And Jeremiah recognizes with great confidence God knows what's going on. Even as he begins by complaining to the Lord about being lured in and about the, the fire of the Word. As he begins then to worship and to praise the Lord in the position that he's in and have confidence in the Lord, he recognizes God knows who's right. And God knows who's wrong. And the Lord knows who is suffering for it. And the Lord knows who is doing the attacking. 
The confidence of the persecuted, listen, get this, the confidence of the persecuted is the righteousness of the Lord. That's our confidence. And if you have a hard time given the Word, if you're struggling in walking in the Christian life, your confidence is His righteousness, which is perfect. Revelation 19, verses 1 and 2. I love reading these two verses. After these things, John said, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven. And by the way, that multitude will include you and me. So when you read Revelation 19, 1 and 2, you get to read a quote of your own singing in heaven in the future. Right? I hear this multitude saying, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God because His judgments are true and righteous. For He has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her immorality and He has avenged the blood of His bondservants on her. Here's the deal. We don't shrink back and curl up and lick our wounds when mocking and reproach and derision come along for just speaking His word. We know, we know He's going to justly deal with it. So we don't have to. He's going to pay back. So we don't have to. He's going to take the vengeance. So we leave that to Him and we just keep sharing the Word. We keep speaking the Word. Now, that doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. You know, so let's keep it real here. If you take flack for speaking the Word of God, especially from someone you love, it's going to hurt. Of course it will. That's okay. It will be painful. And the prophet reveals this in the third part of this prayer, another one of his Jeremiads. That's a real word. That's a real word. Jeremiad means lamentation. So you can use that word sometimes. See, I'm just, I'm just in the mood for some Jeremiad right now. Third part of the prayer, the cursing of precarious times. The cursing of precarious times, verse 14. Cursed be the day when I was born. Let the day not be blessed when my mother bore me. Cursed be the man who brought the news to my father, saying, A baby boy has been born to you, and made him very happy. But let that man be like the cities which the Lord overthrew without relenting, and let him hear an outcry in the morning and a shout of alarm at noon. And by the way, the man who told Jeremiah's father if he was still alive would hear the sound of the alarm and the outcry at noon as Jerusalem would fall, just as Jeremiah would hear it. He says in verse 17, because he did not kill me before birth, literally from the womb, so that my mother would have been my grave and her womb ever pregnant. In other words, I never made it out alive. That's kind of what I wish had happened. Now, if you stop at verse 17, wow, uh, just kind of sounds like Jeremiah is cursing his existence. I don't think he is. I think what he's cursing is his existence in those days. Verse 17, Why did I ever come forth from the womb to look on trouble and sorrow so that my days have been spent in shame? Have you ever wished you lived in easier times? You know, I used to say to Cheryl every now and then, I do less now because she would always get on to me about it. You know, what would Charles Ingalls think about this? You know, what would they do on the prairie if the lights went out and they couldn't get cable and watch their movie? Oh no, it's the end of the world. 
you know, the little house on the prairie was my ideal, you know, until until Mary went blind on the TV show, and it was just depressing after that. Those of you who are younger, you don't know what I'm talking about. But. I have from time to time, and I'm sure many of you have too, gone, boy, these are tough days. I'll tell you honestly, I absolutely adore and unconditionally love my children, but I, I hate be a, being a parent in this age. I hate it. I hate texting. I hate... I hate computers. I hate the internet. I hate the musical choices that are out. I hate all of it. Because it is so insidious. And it's so constant. And it just seems like parenting in these days. And again, my kids are great kids. Don't get me wrong. I'm not talking about them. But I'm talking about how to navigate this. It was even easier when Corey and Hannah were little, not 10, 15 years ago. It was easier. You know, we would just hit off, and it was over. But now you, you, you hit off, and they're going... <laughs> now the schools... I'm, Rick's going to go off. <laughs> now the schools say, well, they've got to do their homework online. And so the parent says, how do I know he's doing his homework when he's online? Because all he has to do is go click, and the window's gone, and we don't know what he's been looking at. I don't like living in these days. Except that I know they're the last days. There's something good there. And unlike Jeremiah, we are not looking forward to destruction. We are looking forward to rapture. And we are looking forward to the consummation of all things. And while the world is facing a tribulation worse than anything Judah was about to face, we know the end of the story. Seven years after that starts, we know Jesus comes back. We know we come back with Him. We know there's a thousand year kingdom. We know beyond that, the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. And it's marvelous and it's wonderful and we have that to look forward to. So thank you, Lord, for allowing me to live now. But it's hard. It is hard. And that's what Jeremiah is pouring out here. He is cursing precarious times. Jeremiah's got the word just burning up inside of him to the point that he has to get it out. And yet the people of his day are starving to death because they have no idea about the word. The prophet Amos put it this way, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land. Amos 8.11 Not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. You're going to be starving to death. 2 Timothy 4.3-4 It's becoming a very familiar passage around here. The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. And will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. We live in precarious times. Jeremiah did too, and what he's saying here is just he's he's stating the reality. Man, I just wish I didn't live now. Oh, that I had lived in the days of the kingdom of David. You know... Or the early days of the kingdom of Solomon. I get that feeling when we go to Israel. March 2014, put it on your calendar, we're going. I get that feeling. We walk in the land and I just think, oh, that I had had time, if I, if I had been here when Jesus walked. You know? Of course, those were precarious times too, weren't they? I think there have always been precarious times. But this is where Jeremiah is just pouring out his heart. What do we do living in precarious times? Keep on eating. The word. You keep taking it in. 
It keeps giving you heartburn. You keep pouring it out. And let our confidence be in our just and our righteous Jesus. Now, part of the reason for the ridicule that Jeremiah faced was that his prophecies were not immediately fulfilled. Remember, he comes on the scene. He receives his call during the very tail end of the reign of Josiah. And he begins prophesying these things about the corruption and the fall and the destruction of Judah. And it wouldn't happen immediately. And there were probably those, you know, stuffed shirt priests who were looking back at Deuteronomy where God said, here's how you know if a prophet is uh, one of my prophets if what they prophesy comes true. And so Jeremiah is saying, Jerusalem is going to fall. Judah is going to be taken. And the people are going, still here. Nothing's happening. And so Jeremiah starts to take it on the chin. Chapters 1 through 19 of the book of Jeremiah are very vague in terms of timing. But we know that most of the message were given early, messages were given earlier in Jeremiah's ministry. Okay, so mark that. You go through chapter 19, and, and a lot of this stuff is it's a few years off, or it's decades off before it would come to fruition. But Jeremiah keeps preaching it. Now we come to chapter 21 and we fast forward to the last days of Judah. And pretty much from chapter 21 throughout the rest of the book, you're going to see more specific dates and times given and connections to certain kings and people alive at certain times. So it's the drum beats going. We're, we're getting down to the end here. Chapter 21 kicks this all off by going to the end of the end. In fact, the last year or two probably dated around 588. B.C. 586, two years later, is the fall of Jerusalem and the burning of the temple. So we're down within those last two years and chapters 21 through 23, and we're not going to get all through 23 tonight, but these chapters contain a series of messages to and against what I would call the final four. So we enter into the final four tonight. The final four kings of Judah. Josiah dies, and his son Jehoahaz takes the throne. Last three months. And then his son, the next son in line, Jehoiakim, takes the throne. And then the next one in line, Jehoiachin, takes the throne. And finally, Zedekiah. We start, however, in chapter 21 with Zedekiah. So it's out of order chronologically, but it's on purpose, and I think you'll see this by the time we're done. We start with Zed. And chapter 21 lands somewhere between, if you were going to place it chronologically in the book, between chapter 37 and 38. It's probably where it would land in terms of what's happening. But we get it here ahead of time, and again, God is purposeful with this. I think part of why we get this first before we go on into the rest of this is God may be vindicating the divine message of Jeremiah by putting this here. We'll see. So again, the time of the prophecy, 588 B.C. It's the ninth year of Zedekiah's 11-year rule, and Zedekiah is the last king of Judah before Judah goes down. Verse 1 of chapter 21. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord when King Zedekiah sent to him Pashkur. This is a different Pashkur. It was a common name at the time, so it's a different guy because he's the son of Malchijah. The other one was son of Emer. And Zephaniah the priest, the son of Maasiah, saying, 
Please inquire of the Lord on our behalf, for Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, is warring against us. Perhaps the Lord will deal with us according to all his wonderful acts, so the enemy will withdraw from us. Zedekiah. Zedekiah seems to have at least respected Jeremiah. He does send emissaries you know, to the prophet after all. Some of the other kings wouldn't have done that. So there's a degree of respect there, but it's too little too late. And Zedekiah has another glaring problem in his rule and in his authority, and that is he lacks moral conviction. He also lacks personal compassion. Brothers and sisters, whether Jesus returns tonight or this month or this year or tarries for several more years, this is what I believe is required of us today. Moral conviction and gospel compassion. These two things are absolutely critical. It's why we have to get the word out. We've got to get the word out for the sake of moral conviction. That we stand on truth. I had a long conversation today. Uh, Johannan Rempt had, had breakfast with him and his wife Rachel. And we were talking about the post-modernity, the post-modern culture that we live in. And how different the thinking is. And how the church has to... Um, we have to direct ourselves to this culture in a different way than it was done in the past. In the, in the modern age, all you did was say, this is what it says and that's it. And everyone's like, okay, that's what it says. But in the postmodern age, it's all questioned. Everything is relative. Truth is not absolute, or at least that's not how people approach truth. You say, this is the way it is, and the first question is, why? And it's almost a defensive why. And so the way that we approach this postmodern world, number one, we've got to have moral conviction. How are we going to have moral conviction unless we know the absolute truths of Scripture? So we're in the Word, we have moral conviction, and we have gospel compassion. Because I'll tell you, the more convicted I am in my heart, in my life, about the needs of mankind, the more I see people as lost and desperately sick and needing Jesus. And needing the healing that comes only through Him. Zedekiah lacked that. We must have it. Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the Gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul said in Romans 14.22, The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. And Jude said, contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. You know what once for all means? It means that the truth of the gospel is not postmodern. And it's not modern. And it's not passe. It is not limited to culture. It is always right. It is always true. It is always the answer. And we have it, gang. Now Zedekiah, he sends an emissary to Jeremiah and he's probably thinking back, hearkening the days of Hezekiah. Remember what happened? King of Assyria, Sennacherib is coming down. 185,000 Assyrians all encamped around Jerusalem. They're going to take out Jerusalem. Hezekiah gets a threatening note from one of Sennacherib's men, uh, Rabshikah, sends this note saying, we're going to take you out. Hezekiah takes the note, goes to the temple, rolls it out before the Lord, lays his hands on it, prays, Lord, save us. He calls in Isaiah the prophet. King Hezekiah and Isaiah the prophet, a dynamic duo in those days. Both men were intercessors. Both men had great moral conviction, had incredible compassion. 
They were prayerful men who cared about their people. But now we've got Zedekiah. And Zedekiah is, I don't know, maybe he's thinking of himself as a self-styled Hezekiah. Zedekiah is saying, well, I work for Hezekiah, let's give it a shot. And he sends his men to Jeremiah. He wants intercession. He wants intervention. But Zedekiah has no personal conviction or compassion. How do you know that? We can read about it in Kings and in Chronicles. It's very clear. He's just playing the game. He's not a prayerful man. He has no repentance on his heart. He's got no personal relationship. Completely different scenario. And what it reminds me is that we can't run on the faith of our fathers. We can't say, well, like Charles Spurgeon, you know, Lord, could you just direct me? Because you did Spurgeon, so... And he said it, so it's good stuff. We don't run on the faith of our fathers. We don't run on the faith of our forefathers. We run on our faith that is immediate and it's personal and it comes from the Lord to us today, which makes us convicted in our hearts. We know the Lord because we know Him, not because Dad or Granddad or some great church leader in the past says something about it. We own this ourselves. Don't run on your father's faith. What about the great cloud of witnesses? Right? We're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Side note, i got to tell you this. I'm at the hospital visiting Eric, and, and his son Alden was in there. And we were talking, and, and Alden goes, Look at that! We look out the window, and from Island Hospital, from the window where Eric's bed was, you can look straight across and see the refinery. And Alden goes, look at that, it's really cool. The smoke from the refinery, it was kind of a gray day, you know. I know, atypical for this time of year in Washington. <laughs> but it's a gray day, and the, the smoke from the refinery was going up, curling up and becoming the cloud layer. And there was already a cloud layer there, but there's no distinction once it got up there. And he goes, he goes, that's... That's kind of like, that's like kind of like the church, you know, that we're we're walking with Jesus and we're, and we're kind of going up and becoming part of, you know. And I go, Alden, there's a verse for that, the great cloud of witnesses. And Alden goes, cool, <laughs> you know. It was a beautiful picture, but we don't even rely on the great cloud of witnesses for our faith. We can be encouraged by them, but it is not because of Abraham that I believe. It's not because of Isaiah that I believe. It's not because of Jeremiah. It's because of the Holy Spirit, of the living Christ that I believe. And even the Hebrew writer says this, Hebrews 12, verse 1, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Yeah, we got a great cloud of witnesses, But that doesn't do squat for us unless we are running. Unless we are fixed on Jesus, let us be the ones now. Let them cheer you on. But don't think you can just run on their faith. Run on your own. The faith that Jesus gives you. So Zedekiah is looking for an easy oracle. Perhaps, you know, the enemy will withdraw and leave us alone. He doesn't get an easy oracle. Instead, the Lord delivers through Jeremiah three very difficult oracles, three tough ones. And number one, I'm just going to call Zed's Dread. <laughs> Make sure you get that right. It's not Zed Dreads because we don't know what his hair was like. Zed's Dread. Verse 3. Then Jeremiah said to them, You shall say to Zedekiah as follows, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Behold, 
I am about to turn back the weapons of war which are in your hands, with which you are warring against the king of Babylon and the Chaldeans who are besieging you outside the wall. And I will gather them into the center of this city. By the way, verse 4 is how we know we're in about 588, perhaps even 587. Because currently, Babylon is besieging. The siege has already begun. Okay? I myself, the Lord says in verse 5, will war against you with an outstretched hand and a mighty arm, even in anger and wrath and great indignation. I will also strike down the inhabitants of this city, both man and beast. They will die of a great pestilence. So war from without, sickness from within. And then afterwards, verse 7, declares the Lord, I will give over Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his servants, and the people, even those who survive in this city from the pestilence and the sword and the famine, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of their foes, and into the hand of those who seek their lives. And he will strike them down with the edge of the sword. He will not spare them, nor have pity, nor compassion, Zed's dread. The merciless slaying of Zedekiah's household will literally be fulfilled within a year or two of this prophecy. So anyone who questioned the veracity of Jeremiah's teaching would see that he was right on target. In 586 B.C., Zedekiah's sons will be slain before his eyes. It will be the last thing Zedekiah sees, and then they put his eyes out. So that becomes Zedekiah's lasting memory for the rest of his days. He's dragged off to Babylon and he dies there in grief and in exile. And we will see the history of it recounted at the very end of Jeremiah chapter 52. Zed's dread. That's the first oracle. Second oracle, the people's bed. Zed's dread, the people's bed. They made their bed and now they have to lie on it. Verse 8. You shall also say to this people, thus says the Lord, Behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. This is fascinating. Don't miss this. He who dwells in this city will die by the sword and by the famine and by the pestilence. But he who goes out and falls away to the Chaldeans who are besieging you will live. And he will have his own life as booty. Verse 10 For I have set my face against this city for harm and not for good, declares the Lord. It will be given into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he will burn it with fire. You've made your bed. You've got to lie in it. You're going to have to take the consequence of your decisions here. You are going to have to go through discipline. However, the gracious Lord says, I have an option for you that will keep you alive. You don't have to die. Stay in the city, you're going to die. Give up. Go out to the foreign invader and you will live. In other words, accept my discipline and I will keep you alive. Reject my discipline and you will die. Proverbs 13.24 tells us, He who withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. God is a loving Father. He loves us too much to let us go without consequence. To allow us to go without discipline. In spite of His righteous anger, God loves His children Israel. And what's remarkable here, and I think we may have hinted at this before, but what is punishment for Judah is also protection. 
Go into this place of my discipline and I will keep you alive. And you will have offspring. And we know that. Seventy years later, the offspring of these people will go back to the land. Follow, accept my discipline, you'll live. Reject it, and you'll die. My punishment is my protection. Hebrews 12.7 tells us, It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Recognize this in our lives. Sometimes what feels like punishment from the Lord is our protection as well. He's doing both. And we need to receive the discipline of our Father. Zed's dread, the people's bed, and the third oracle, Judah's head. (laughs) Trying to help you remember this here. Verse 11. Then say to the household of the king of Judah, Hear the word of the Lord, O house of David, thus says the Lord. Judah's head. This last part of the three oracles is to all the kings of Judah. It's to the leadership, it's to the authority that God put over His people through the line of Judah. He says in verse 12, Administer justice every morning and deliver the person who has been robbed from the power of the oppressor that my wrath may not go forth like fire and burn with none to extinguish it because of the evil of their deeds. What is this about? This is 11th hour stuff. The judgment we know is not going to be averted. This is coming. Jerusalem's going down. So why all of a sudden is God talking about justice and deliverance? And I think what's being talked about here is this. If the king, as a king of Judah, if King Zedekiah would spend his last days on justice and deliverance, the punishment could at least be mitigated, lessened. If you'll do this, it will go better for you. If you will turn to justice and deliverance. Behold, I'm against you, O valley dweller, O rocky plain, declares the Lord. You men who say, who will come down against us? Or who will enter our habitations? But I will punish you according to the results of your deeds, declares the Lord. And I will kindle a fire in its forest that it may devour all its environs. The Hebrew rocky plain there is literally, some of your Bibles tell you in the margin, it's literally translated rock of the level place. Rocky plains and valley dwellers. What's he talking about? Jerusalem. Rock of the level place being the mountains of Jerusalem, the valley dwellers, the Kedron, the Chenom, the Tyropoeum, the, the valleys of Jerusalem, rocks and valleys. And so it's a a picture that is being drawn of Jerusalem. And chapter 21 ends with a final word to Jerusalem, which is the city of the great kings. Now, chapter 22 draws back from here. Immediately we get transported, thrown back from 588, back to 609. Back to the first king of the final four. We've already dealt now with the last one. We go back to the first one. Why is it placed here? Why suddenly are we being thrown back? And, and, and what, with the order of this, it's interesting to me. Genesis 18.25, Abraham said to the Lord, Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? And with the judge of all the earth, here's the point. Warning always precedes judgment. So we get chapter 20, 
which is that, or chapter 21, that picture of final judgment at the end of the reign of the fourth king, or the final king, Zedekiah. And then the Lord, as if to remind us, as well as the people of Judah, goes back and says, but listen, this is not an immediate surprise here. This has been going on since 609. I've been giving you this word. You've received warning after warning after warning all the way down. And we're reminded of the righteousness of God in that all four of the final kings, they all had fair warning before the judgment fell. Follow this through. We covered the other three kings now very quickly. Verse 1, chapter 22. Thus says the Lord, Go down to the house of the king of Judah and there speak this word. This is 609. And say, hear the word of the Lord, O king of Judah, who sits on David's throne, you and your servants and your people who enter these gates. Thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness and deliver the one who has been robbed from the oppressor. Also do not mistreat or do violence to the stranger, the orphan, the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place. For if you men will indeed perform this thing, then kings will enter the gates of this house, sitting in David's place on his throne, riding in chariots and on horses, even the king himself and his servants and his people. So all of this is not, we're not in the 11th hour now. We're back at the first of the final four. Okay, And so the Lord is still at that point drawing back saying, I'm giving you opportunity here. This is what I want you to do. Josiah has just died and now his son Jehoahaz is on the throne. And so the Lord is speaking to Jehoahaz who, if you remember, lasted three months. months. He had a righteous reign. (laughs) He didn't do so well. Obviously he didn't do this. He didn't care about the stranger, the orphan, the widow. Do we? We need to. I'm, I'm really impressed lately at how the Lord is leading this fellowship, just in terms of our involvement in things, uh, outside of our four walls, what we're doing, what we're getting called to be involved with. And some of this I've shared with you, the, the possibility of, of adoption and foster care being a ministry of the bridge. Uh, missions, opportunities, different things going on. But I read this and I hear the stranger, the orphan, and the widow, and it hits me again. The stranger, the stranger is the foreigner who lacks the rights of a citizen. The orphan is the child who lacks the rights of inheritance. The widow is the woman who lacks the covering of a husband. And in all three cases, the Lord says, these are the people who don't have the chance, who don't have the opportunity, who don't have the shot that you have. What are you going to do for them? How are you going to care? Not just for your own citizenry. How are you going to care for the illegal? And by the way, this we need to pray about this. Because it's becoming a bigger and bigger issue in our area. Right? Have you noticed in the Skagit Valley? Have you noticed around here? More and more we're seeing a large influx of Mexican workers. Many are legal, are here legally. Many are not. What do we do? We're going to have to have an opinion. We're going to have to have a mode of operation as a church. And we need to think about this and begin praying now. Lord, how are we going to care for the stranger? How are we going to care for the orphan? What are we going to do for the widow? The Lord specifies these who have no protection, no cover because of their very position. And what does He say? Care for them. Take care of them. Look out for them. 
Micah chapter 6, verse 8, the prophet said, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly before your God. And it's not American justice he's talking about. It is divine justice, which is bigger than the justice I was raised on. Okay, I hope I'm not sounding anti-American. I don't mean to at all. I'm just saying we're engaged in a bigger kingdom than the kingdom of America, right? And so our concern has to be bigger than that. Verse 5, quickly before I get into trouble. (laughs) But if you will not obey these words, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that this house will become a desolation. So here comes the warning, 609 B.C. For thus says the Lord concerning the house of the king of Judah, You're like Gilead to me, like the summit of Lebanon. He's talking about the most fertile and the most beautiful places in the land, the summit of Lebanon with all its snow and rain and and lush uh, landscape. Gilead the same way. He says, Yet, most assuredly, I will make you like a wilderness, like cities which are not inhabited. For I will set apart destroyers against you, each with his weapons, and they will cut down your choicest cedars and throw them on the fire. Many nations will pass by this city, and they will say to one another, Why has the Lord done this to, the great, to this great city? And then they will answer, Because they forsook the covenant of the Lord their God and bowed down to other gods and served them. Now watch this. All this came before the downward spiral of the final four. We're right in between now. Josiah has just died. This word comes to the king of Judah, who is Jehoahaz, his son. And so in quick succession, we're going to see that these kings will not listen and they will fall and it's one big spinning spiral down that gets faster and faster. King Josiah was slain in the battle of Megiddo in 609 B.C. Right after this, enter Jehoahaz. Verse 10 says, Do not weep for the dead or mourn for him. Him is Josiah, who's just died. But weep continually for the one who goes away, for he will never return or see his native land. Hint, hint, this is going to happen to Jehoahaz. Don't weep for Josiah. He died in battle, but he's gathered unto his fathers. You weep for your current ruler, who's not going to do so well. Verse 11, For thus says the Lord, In regard to Shalom, the son of Josiah, Shalom is another name for Jehoahaz. The king of Judah who became king in the place of Josiah his father who went forth from his place, he will never return there, but in the place where they led him captive, there he will die and not see this land again. Wait a minute, Rick, didn't you say Josiah just died? And now Jehoahaz is already taken into captivity? Exactly. Three months after taking his father's throne, Shalom, Jehoahaz, was hauled off into Egyptian exile. He would never come back to the land. Pharaoh Necho, Pharaoh over Egypt at the time, sets his brother Jehoiakim on the throne, and now the prophecy turns to him. Jehoahaz is out, Jehoiakim is in, now we get down to about 597 B.C. and watch the build-up as God prophesies against Jehoiakim, He'll start in the third person, he'll move to the second person, and then he'll call him by name. Verse 13. Woe to him who builds his house without righteousness, and his upper rooms without justice, who uses his neighbor's services without pay, and does not give him his wages, who says, I will build myself a roomy house with spacious upper rooms, 
and cut out its windows, paneling it with cedar and painting it bright red. (laughs) Cedar house, painted bright red. It was the color of, of the Oriental kings. The Oriental monarchs to say, look at how, how beautiful our homes, our palaces. Look how marvelous we are. And truly, Jehoiakim did this. He comes in after the three-month rule of his brother, who's out of there. Jehoiakim, set up by Pharaoh Nico, so he's got a little power behind him, starts raising taxes so that he himself can enjoy his vacation, can build his house. Taxes are going up under this guy. (laughs) Verse 15. Do you become a king because you are competing in cedar? I love that. That's, That's godly sarcasm right there. Did not your father eat and drink and do justice and righteousness? Another great line. Listen, Josiah enjoyed good things. Josiah was blessed. He ate and drank. He had a nice place. I took care of him. And and in addition to that, he did justice and righteousness. It's not either or. You can have both. I can bless you as you're doing the right thing. And then it was well with him. He pled the cause of the afflicted and the needy. Then it was well. Is not that what it means to know me? I'll tell you what, right there in verses 15, that's a Sunday morning teaching. So maybe I'll save it and come back to it. Is that not what it means to know me? What is he saying? He's saying, if you know me, this becomes the the natural outflow of our relationship. If you just know me, you're going to naturally choose righteousness and justice. You're naturally going to do the right thing. You're going to please the cause of the afflicted and the needy. If you know me, So don't go out to do these things. Start by knowing me, and you will do these things, declares the Lord. I think of what Paul says to Timothy, 1 Timothy 6, verse 6, Godliness is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. Be content with what I bless you with, and just walk with me. Verse 18, Therefore, thus says the Lord in regard to Jehoiakim, now he's named, Third person, second person, now he's named Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. They will not lament for him, alas, my brother, or alas, sister. They will not lament for him, alas, for the master, or alas, for his splendor. He will be buried with a donkey's burial. Dragged off and thrown out beyond the gates of Jerusalem. And there are so many puns in that, I'm not even going to touch it. But apparently, Jehoiakim was killed and his body was tossed out of the city to rot beyond the gates. Outside the gates of Jerusalem. Jeremiah 36, verse 30 says, Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, king of Judah, He shall have no one to sit on the throne of David, and his dead body shall be cast out to the heat of the day and the frost of the night. And I I read that and immediately thought, He's dragged off. He's thrown out beyond the gates of Jerusalem. But another king was killed outside the gates too, wasn't he? Another king was led out outside the city gates, but his body was not tossed out like a donkey's burial. His body was laid in the tomb of a rich man. Shouldn't have been, but it was. And three days later, that king rose from the grave. We move from Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, 
finally down to Jehoiachin, who's the next king in line. Verse 20. Actually, maybe we're not, we're not quite there yet. Go up to Lebanon. Cry out and lift up your voice in Bashan. Cry out also from Abarim, for all your lovers have been crushed. Why those three places? Lebanon's in the north. Bashan is in the northeast. Abarim is in the southeast. So he says, go all over the land. And you'll discover that even your lovers have been crushed. I spoke to you in your, pros- in your prosperity. Okay, still talking to Jehoiakim. But you said, I will not listen. I will not listen. Remember what Yohanan said on Sunday morning? The YWAM Discipleship Training School, in a nutshell, listen to God and obey Him. That's it. And that's what Jehoiakim was not doing. I will not listen, you said. This has been your practice from your youth, that you have not obeyed my voice. The wind will sweep away all your shepherds, and your lovers will go into captivity, and then you will surely be ashamed and humiliated because of all your wickedness. You who dwell in Lebanon, nested in the cedars, how you will groan when pangs come upon you, pain like a woman in childbirth. Jeremiah uses that picture six times in the book of Jeremiah to describe Judah's fall, the pain of childbirth. Pangs leading up to it. And you Bible students know birth pangs are consistently the example used by the Lord to indicate the coming of righteous judgment. Jesus says in Matthew 24, 6, you'll be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened. Those things must take place. But that is not yet the end. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes, but all these things are the beginning of birth pangs. And as we've talked about, it's the case in Judah with Jehoiakim. It's also the case in our world today. Birth pangs get closer and closer and closer and closer. They get more intense. They come more quickly. And that's how you know you're closer to the birth. Closer to the end. And that's how we can keep an eye on the signs of the times as they intensify and they incrementally become closer together. We start to realize, yeah, we really are at the end of the end. We're in the last days here. Exit Jehoiakim with the honor of a donkey. And enter Jehoiachin, whose name is also called Coniah. And he comes along also in... Uh, when does he come along? Later. I guess you know, he comes along in 597. He, he lasts for three months. Okay? Three months. And then Zedekiah will be the final 11 years. But we'll end with Coniah. As I live, declares the Lord, even though Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were a signet on my right hand... Yet I would pull you off. The signet ring being the most precious ring because it's the ring of the ruler. The signet ring being that sign of authority. And it would have been a beautiful ring. And though you were a signet ring on my right hand, though you were my authority, my king, my ruler, I would rip you off. That's what he's saying. And I will give you over into the hand of those who are seeking your life. Yes! into the hand of those whom you dread, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. I will hurl you and your mother who bore you into another country where you were born, and there you will die. Verse 27, But as for the land to which they desire to return, they will not return to it. Jehoiachin is probably his throne name. Jeconiah 
is the abbreviation Hebrew-wise of that name. Yehoiachin, Jeconiah, the abbreviated name. And Jeconiah means the Lord will establish. Jeh, anytime you see Jeh in the Hebrew, it's Yah, Yah, from Yahweh. And so the Yah in it, even Jeremiah, it has to do with God. Okay, So Jeconiah meant the Lord will establish, but God takes the Yah out of his name and will not call him Jeconiah, will only call him Coniah, because the Lord will no longer and will not establish his throne. Okay, It's not going to last, and of course it doesn't. It goes down in three months. In fact, he's not going to establish Coniah's entire line. Verse 28, is this man Coniah a despised, shattered jar? Yes, he is. Or is he an undesirable vessel? Yes, he is. Why have he and his descendants been hurled out and cast into a land that they had not known? Oh, land, 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 hear the word of the Lord. There's passion in this. Thus says the Lord, write this man down childless, a man who will not prosper in his days, for no man of his descendants will prosper sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. And thus ends right there the Solomonic line of the kings of Judah. Jeconiah, Coniah, according to the Lord, is the last king in the line of Solomon. There cannot be another one because God curses the line. None of your sons, none of your sons' sons, none of your grandsons, great-grandsons, great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandsons, none of them will ever rule, can ever sit on the line, on the throne, in the line of Solomon. Now you might say, well, what about Zedekiah? Because Coniah's tossed out. Zedekiah, the fourth and final king of the final four, he's raised up, right? Well, Zedekiah was Coniah's uncle. And he was set up by Nebuchadnezzar as a puppet king. But even as a puppet, he foolishly rebels against Nebuchadnezzar, rebels against the word of the Lord through Jeremiah, and he brings the final and full weight of Babylon down on his own head. And it's kind of sad, but Zedekiah never really had the confidence of the people to be their king. During his entire 11-year rule, the people were still looking back to Jehoiakim. Though he was evil, he was more popular. And Zedekiah, they just kind of looked as a, he's an uncle, he's not, he was not in the line, he shouldn't even be on the throne. And that was the attitude that they had toward him. Now, we need to just peek into chapter 23 because the Lord gives a final judgment on these final four kings, answering his question from verse 28, why have he, that is, Kaniah and his descendants, been hurled out and cast into a land they did not know? Verse 1 of 23 says, Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel, Concerning the shepherds who are tending my people, you have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not attended to them. Behold, I am about to attend to you for the evil of your deeds, declares the Lord. And so Coniah is thrown out and another king... Another king came along in the royal line of Judah. Not one of the final four. But also not from Solomon's line, but from David's son Nathan. And we've talked about this before. Matthew chapter 1 verses 1 through 17 gives the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the legal route to the throne, but it, it lands us with Joseph. It was the Solomonic line. 
Joseph was on the cursed line of Coniah. Joseph and his sons could never have sat on the throne. Luke 3, 23-38 gives the legitimate route through the throne, still through the tribe of Judah, still from the line of David, but through his son Nathan. It's the Nathanic line, and that line bypasses the curse of Coniah and gives Jesus every legal right to sit on the throne as a king of Judah, king of the Jews. Now, this is the best part of the whole night. I got done with chapter 22, and I was about to close my Bible, and and it's a little discouraging because you get down to the end of the final four, and it's just, here's the spiral down. Guess what? It's not a spiral down. It goes from bad to worse, and then the Lord turns around in chapter 23 and shows us that the reality is this is all just the lead-up, not to the final four, but to the final king himself. Check this out, verse 3. Then I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I've driven them and bring them back to their pasture and they'll be fruitful and multiply. I will raise up shepherds over them and they will tend them and they will not be afraid any longer nor be terrified nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And his name by which he will be called is Yahweh Sidkenu, the Lord our righteousness. And that is the final king, Jesus Christ. Isn't it marvelous what the Lord has done here? He takes us through the final four. Right when we get to the place of disaster, of fallout, of complete and utter failure, he says, now do you get it, you broken bakbuks? <laughs> now do you understand, in all of your brokenness and failure, I will raise up a king. And he will judge righteously. And he is Jesus. Praise the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank You so much for Your Word. Father, we just worship our King Jesus. We lift up the name of Jesus. We we have not yet even come to fully understand what it will be like to praise You, Lord Jesus, in that day. To fall on our faces before You among the multitudes just crying out and shouting the marvelous and wonderful name of Jesus, Yeshua. And we long for the day when we will worship at Your feet, when we will walk in Your presence, when we will ride behind You as You come to bring that final and eternal rule. But we acknowledge You right now, Lord, as our King. Jesus as our Savior and our Sovereign. And we praise Your name tonight. In Jesus' name.